Hi, this is John Cohn, author of the novel Slash Tag, and you're listening to The Graveyard Show. And welcome to another edition of the Graveyard Show podcast. I am your caretaker, and the graveyard is open. Last podcast, I mentioned the 2023 Fangoria Chainsaw Awards, and one of the awards went to Mia Goth, who won Best Lead for her role in Pearl. Now, this isn't the first time Mia Goth's name has come up during awards season. Earlier this year, there was some feeling that she should have received an Oscar nomination for Pearl. Now, recently, I came across an article from January of 2023 that was on Collider. And once again, it confirms the problem that horror movies come across when being considered, quote unquote, legit. Now, this article, which I'm showing you if you're watching this online, talks about how Mia Goth should have been nominated for an Oscar. But like so many times in the past, the horror genre just cannot break through that glass ceiling that exists over it. Now, as you can see here that I've highlighted, and I will read it for those of you listening on the podcast, it has been a growing problem that the Academy has faced criticism for in the past. This year was no different. Now, one of 2022's biggest horror stars, Mia Goth, has recently spoken out about the lack of horror representation at the Oscars. Scrolling down. I think that it's very political, the Pearl star said. She continued, it's not entirely based on the quality of a project per se. There's a lot going on there and a lot of cooks in the kitchen when it comes to nominations. Maybe I shouldn't say that, but I think that's true. I think a lot of people know that. Goth would finish off saying, a change is necessary. A shift should take place if they wanted to engage with the wider public. I think it would be of benefit, really, and then in parentheses, to nominate horror movies. And then the article goes on to talk about how she had dual performances in the film X. And um, it also discusses her six-minute one-take monologue, uh, the I'm a star breakdown. And then I don't want to ruin anything else uh, for those that have not seen the film yet. And now there's another uh, link right here that uh, takes us to another article on Collider that says Mia Goth deserved an Oscar nomination for her work in Pearl. And this kind of gets into the meat of the matter, which is which I, I really appreciate. It talks about how Goth's Pearl is a character that will live on in the memory of cinephiles for a very long time. Like Kathy Bates, Annie Wilkes and Jack Nicholson's Jack Torrance, Pearl is one of those memorable complex movie villains over which we will obsess for years to come. And all of that is thanks to Mia Goth's amazing performance. And yet, looking at this year's nominees for the 95th Academy Awards, it's as if Pearl and Goth never existed. The article continues, among this year's many snubs, Viola Davis not getting nominated for The Woman King, Indian blockbuster RRR being restricted to Best Song, etc. One that feels particularly egregious is Mia Goth's absence in the Best Actress in a Leading Role category. With her three performances this year, she deserved a prize for her body of work. But if nothing else, she at least deserved to be recognized for her once-in-a-lifetime performance in Pearl. Sadly... Her chances of getting an Oscar nod were never that great. The Academy isn't exactly known for its love of horror. Continuing further down the article, there is a, a headline that says, A long-lasting bias against horror is keeping goth from getting the statuette. Now, here's some really interesting numbers, so pay attention. Over the course of 95 years, only 19 horror movies, 19 horror movies, have been nominated for an Oscar most of which in technical categories. In 74, you had The Exorcist, which took home the award for Best Adapted Screenplay. In 2018, you have Get Out receiving the Best Original Screenplay Oscar. Uh, the only horror film to ever win Best Picture was 1991's Silence of the Lambs, which won uh, Picture, Director for Jonathan Demme, Best Actor for Anthony Hopkins, Best Actress for Jodie Foster, and Best Adapted Screenplay. Now, here's something crazy. Just six horror movies, six, were ever nominated for Best Picture. We know one of them, Silence of the Lambs. Can you name the other five? I'll give you a couple more seconds. Five, four, three, two, one. Here are the other five. 
The Exorcist, Jaws, Sixth Sense, Black Swan, Get Out. Those five joined Silence of the Lambs for the only six horror movies ever to be nominated for Best Picture. That is insane. Acting-wise, besides Hopkins and Foster, few horror stars have taken home that golden, bald statuette. Frederick March was the first, winning the prize in 1932 for Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Kathy Bates won Best Actress for Misery. Natalie Portman won Best Actress for Black Swan. Uh, Supporting category, you have Ruth Gordon, who won the Oscar in 1969 for Rosemary's Baby. And they point out recent snubs, two incredibly strong performances that I really, really enjoyed. Uh, Lupita Nyong'o in Us uh, was fantastic. And of course, Toni Collette in Hereditary. I was shocked when both of them were not nominated uh, for Oscars. Now, in fairness to the Academy, it's very easy to point the finger at them and say, it's your fault. Okay. Now, I'm speaking for both movies and for television. The reality of the situation is this. When you're a member of the Academy, whether you're voting for movies, voting for television, um, what happens is come award season, you are just totally inundated with screeners. What I mean by that is, is that you're getting discs in the mail for movies or for television series, and you're getting a lot of them even in this day and age of digital. Now, adding to that, all the digital streaming sites that you get. So you'll get emails for uh, individual movies. You'll get emails for studio links to go on and watch anything that they have on there. You get them from the guilds. You get them from the Directors Guild. You get them from Screen Actors Guild. You get them from the Writers Guild. You get them from the Producers Guild. So if you're a member of one or all or some of these Uh, different unions, you are getting tons and tons of emails and screeners. You're getting multiple screeners. So if you're a member of the Directors Guild and you're a member of the Screen Actors Guild, you may be getting multiple um, discs or screeners, uh, screener links uh, to the same movie. So now you have to go through and figure out what you have. You're getting all this stuff and now you're supposed to sit and watch it. And the reality is, is that there's not enough hours in the day to see all this stuff. So what happens is, is that if you're not actively out there promoting your product, it's going to get lost in the shuffle. So it works both ways here. Yes, the Academy needs to open up and they need to start accepting the horror genre for what it is, other than when it's quote unquote legitimate work. And you need to get the studios out there to say, hey, we think that this is worthy. We want to get this out there. Is it worth going through all of this effort and money to send all this stuff out. So you have to consider that as well. So there are a lot of factors here to consider when looking at nominations. It's more than just, well, they're shutting it out because it's from this genre. That is part of it. Yes, that is very true because there is a bias on horror. But at the same time, if studios really want to um, be a part of the conversation, then they need to actively be involved as well. Now, this is a much bigger conversation for another time, uh, but I just wanted to point out how the horror genre, even in 2023, is still looking for respect in the world of entertainment. But then again, you know, maybe as horror fans, uh, we're pretty happy in our own universe, and maybe we just don't care about getting respect from anyone outside of it. That's just my two cents, and I would love to hear your opinion on this as well. Uh, If you're watching this online, please leave your comments down below. Uh, Let me know what you think. And uh, if you're listening on the podcast and you want to uh, email the program, you can do so at the following email address, gyspodcast at gmail.com. That's gyspodcast at gmail.com. Always looking forward to your thoughts and comments. As you heard at the top of the show, author John Cohn will be joining me in just a moment to talk about his latest book, Slash Tag, which is currently available on Amazon in digital and hard copy formats. But before he arrives, here are some quick news and notes. Now, this one's a quick note. Terrifier 3 is coming soon. <laughs> that, that's all I have. Um, Deadline uh, reported it uh, a few days ago that uh, Terrifier 3 is in the early embryonic stages of being uh, put together. So there you go. Look, it makes total sense. Terrifier 2 was a massive hit. This movie made a ton of money on a, on a minuscule budget. Um, It got great reviews. Uh, Fans loved it. Um, I think Terrifier 2 has now elevated Art the Clown into the iconic uh, horror character stratosphere with Chucky and Myers and Jason and Pinhead and all of them. Freddy, 
I, I really think that Terrifier 2 was that sort of moment where Art the Clown became a could-be iconic character to is an iconic horror character. Um, and let's not forget, that movie, folks, clocked into two and a half hours. Two and a half hours for a horror movie. Now, normally, you know, these movies run anywhere from 75 to 95 minutes on average. Usually 90 is sort of the, the, the sweet spot. So for this movie to be two and a half hours, to be a massive success in theaters, right at the tail end of a pandemic, not only shows you the popularity of this character, but also how good this movie really is. So congratulations again to Damien Leone. Um, I, I, I think he really, I mean, he made this two and a half hour movie feel like it was 90 minutes. It really was. And I have to say too, there's always that one massive kill in one of these Terrifier movies that just kind of chills you to the bone. And, um, well, of course, Terrifier 2 had that. Uh, Terrifier had it. And that still haunts me when I think about that scene. You know the one I'm talking about if you've seen it. So uh, there is a promise, of course, that Terrifier 3 is going to go even farther. So I, I, I don't even know if I want to know <laughs> what that entails. But um, congratulations to everybody over there. Um, well done. And uh, uh, can't wait to see what Terrifier 3 has in store for all of us. Well, if you're a fan of the uh, 1986 film Trick or Treat, well, you are going to be very happy to hear this. Uh, the film is going to be getting a Blu-ray 4K release from Synapse Films. Uh, the upcoming release will be packed with exclusive bonus content from Red Shirt Pictures, and it's going to feature a brand new 4K restoration. Synapse has said that uh, this exciting re-release has been restored in 4K from the original camera negative that brings the horror and heavy metal mayhem to life like never before. In addition to the restored picture and sound, the package will also include exclusive bonus features such as behind-the-scenes content, interviews with cast and crew, and much, much more. Uh, no date has been announced yet, but Synapse is looking at releasing Trick or Treat in 2023. Creative AC is adapting their 1980s horror documentary series into an exclusive limited-edition coffee table book. That's right, In Search of Darkness... The Coffee Table Book. It's written by renowned horror experts Heather Wixon and Patrick Bromley. Uh, the book is going to offer an in-depth look at over 200 films featured in the series. Just like the documentary, the book is going to explore each year of the 1980s, showcasing movies in chronological order. It will also include additional material such as horror icon features, year in review pages, box office numbers, and a checklist for fans to mark off the films they've seen. They are committed to providing a definitive tribute to the films that forever changed the face of horror. The limited edition coffee table book will be available for pre-order from now until the end of the summer, and it's going to ship out in early 2024. Mass market editions will be available in the fall of that year, and of course, there's always a special bonus. The first thousand pre-orders will get their name in the book and an I love 1980s horror gift pack. All right. Now, my favorite part whenever I talk about these movies, here are the features. The pre-order bonus includes, as I said, your name in the book, an 80s horror stadium cup, TV squishy, bracelet, sticker, an 11 by 17 checklist poster, a chance to receive one of 100 8 by 10 signed photos from horror legends randomly inserted into orders. Now, here are the book details. It's a 10 by 12 glossy hardcover book, limited edition cover, each copy individually numbered, an in-depth exploration of over 200 films. It's a one-of-a-kind limited edition book. Do not miss this. It's $84.99, and you can find it at 80shorrorbook.com. That's 80shorrorbook.com. Check it out. And if you have not heard any of my interviews with anyone associated with the In Search of Darkness series, well, go back a bunch of tombstones. You're going to find interviews with director David Weiner, producer and the creator of the series, Robin Block, and of course, the men behind the score of all these movies, Jamie Chambers, Don McLennan Jr., known as Weary Pines. 
And of course, if you're catching this on YouTube, well, just go down to the playlist, In Search of Darkness. There's an entire In Search of Darkness wing. And I also have the uh, Coffee Table Book commercial on the Graveyard Show podcast website as well. You can check it out there and uh, see what this looks like. It is fantastic. All right, that's going to do it for news and notes. And as you hear in the background, well, that sound means only one thing. We're adding a new grave to this here graveyard. And when that happens, that means my guest is here and it's time for me to get to work. Joining me now is John Cohn, the author of the new book, Slash Tag, which is available everywhere books are sold. His first book, The Island Mother, debuted at number three in U.S. Horror on Amazon. And it is a pleasure welcoming John to the Graveyard Show podcast. John, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me here. Well, it's great having you here. I appreciate you taking the time to talk about your book. Um, but before I, I get into your latest book, uh, Slash Tag, I thought I'd ask you when you first became interested in horror. Oof. So, I mean, as a kid, you know, I was a 90s kid. I read all the Goosebumps books. I was absolutely obsessed with the uh, Are You Afraid of the Dark you know, th- those kinds of shows that were made for, for kids in the 90s really hooked me. They grabbed me young. Uh, and, then, and then I got uh, I got hooked on, on watching, you know, like Nightmare on Elm Street and the Jason movies, probably a bit younger than I should have. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, when, when other kids were getting nightmares, uh, I was getting ideas. So, uh, you know, I was uh, they had Fangoria magazine back at the time and I would always go to the store and I wasn't allowed to buy them. But I would sit there while like my parents were at Barnes and Noble looking at real books and I'd be going through and like just trying to look up monster movie effects. I just wanted to see like the gory stuff. I wanted to look at the monsters back then. Uh, And so like ever since I was a little kid, I was absolutely fascinated with everything having to do with horror. Is there a specific type of horror that you enjoy? You know, I I have a soft spot for body horror. I Uh don't know what it is. I just think something about growing weird extra limbs or mutating. Um, I I haven't written a book with body horror yet. I think it's coming. Uh, But uh, yeah, it's, I don't know. I watched, you know, The Fly. Early, early, very young, and I thought, "Ooh, this is this is some good stuff." I was gonna say, uh, you must have been a big fan of Cronenberg because that's that's uh, the wheelhouse right there. Huge Cronenberg fan. Videodrome uh, was really influential on me, young, and but even ones that that were less body horror, but still had a lot of his sort of signature stuff. Scanners was really big uh, for me as a kid. Absolutely, yeah, it's. I, I remember I've told this story in the podcast before, but when I first saw Scanners, it was in the early days of HBO and because Scanners came out in 80, I think it was 80, and I would have been, you know, like 10. So I remember my folks had HBO and it was like that rare time where we had it back in those days. And back in those days, you could um, you had the lockbox, so they would have the cable feed going into this box. It was like a parental box, so they could turn the key take the key and then you couldn't watch HBO when they weren't home and I'll never forget we were watching scanners for the first time and we didn't know what the movie was about and when that head blew up I'll never forget my mom got up turned off HBO locked the lockbox and took the key and I'm like what does it have to do with why am I being punished for that and what a physical reaction to actually be able to get up and like lock a movie that's such a, a like a weird experience like there's everything's so digital now but to have like such a core analog experience of like I am literally locking you out of this film right and these, these, by the way, are the same people that took me to see Alien in the theaters when it came out. So there you go. It's a little bit of a, a little bit of a dichotomy going on there. That's fair. Um, so you're the first game designer that I've ever had on the podcast, and um, it's really a profession that's uh, that's interested to me, um, being a fan of board games. Um, so how does one become a game designer, and when did you realize that that was a path you wanted to take? You know, I, for me, I think a lot of a lot of things came together when I finally started committing to writing full time. Um, I still do some board game work on on the side. It's mostly commissioned work these days. But uh, you know, I was a kid. I was playing Dungeons and Dragons. I was coming up with my own worlds. 
Um, I was playing Magic the Gathering in like sixth grade. And all of those things were games that required you to use your imagination. They required you to use kind of analytics. um, And they were great primers uh, to sort of say, hey, this game isn't locked in. You know, you have your own direction that you can take this if you want to. I remember there was a game, there's a, a company, Steve Jackson Games. They make all the Munchkin games that like everybody knows about. Um, and there was a game that was called Frag. If it moves, shoot it. Um, and it was supposed to be simulating like a first person shooter, but in board game form. And they gave you all of these extra cards for guns and weapons that were blank. And I was like, oh my God, I can make my own weapons. Uh, and so like my friend and I, we were like, like crazy creative about, you know, all this weird stuff. And we were like, okay, we're going to create a mercury gun that like shoots mercury bullets that can poison people. And like, we got way too into it, but you know, it was one of those things that the kind of the bug bit me early. Um, and weirdly enough, you know, the, the board game stuff really melded into storytelling, uh, from an early age. And so, uh, it it really kind of taught me the fundamentals of writing, uh, by, by creating worlds in Dungeons and Dragons. And basically, um, in, you know, in board games, you're kind of creating scaffolding for players to tell their own story. You're saying, okay, here are the parameters. Here's the rules. Here's the world that you've been dropped in. Now, you're going to walk away from this play experience with a story of what happened in the game you played. And when I'm writing books, it's kind of a similar thing where it's like, okay, you start with the foundation, you start with the world building, you start with the characters. And um, it's just taking it that extra step and then saying, okay, well, now I'm removing the rest of the players and, and removing their story. And I'm creating my own story now within that world. So how, how did you, what path did you take then um, to, becoming a game designer how did how did you actually get that first job or what what job led you to becoming a game designer sure so i had been making games just kind of for fun with my friends like i said I'd, I'd done a lot of dungeons and dragons where i had made my own worlds and i'd, I'd love to make them kind of horror themed because that didn't super exist when i was when i was doing it in high school and in college um and so i um I'd made some games just I had I had a game in college that I made that was called like the Mary Curie Challenge. And it was basically a deck of cards and you were trying to not radiate yourself, give yourself poisoning <laughs> from nuclear radiation. And it was like it was like like silly, weird shit like that. Um, but then I had had met some people. I was working on some different things and I got in with IDW, um, when they were working, you know, the comic book company, but they were doing games at the time. Um, and I, I had somehow managed to work my way into the, the premiere screening of their TV show, Winona Earp based off of a, a graphic novel series. Um, and I met their their product designer who ended up becoming my business partner and he's like my best friend now and we've been working together for like 10 years. Um, but we had a lot to talk about and I had just a bunch of ideas from like stupid games I'd created just, just thinking like, I'm, this is just for me and my friends, this will never see the light of day. Uh, but then he was like, well, come on in, let's talk. Uh, and, and from there it was like, oh, oh th- I guess this is how you get your foot in the door. <laughs> uh, it, it really is networking. Right. Um, and so uh, from there I kind of got bit by the bug and, um, the, the progression from there is a lot of heartbreak. And <laughs> I, I had that first instance where he was like, oh yeah, like we'll put out your game. Like you've got this already done. It's cool. And then it was like, all right, what do I do for my next game? Yeah. And it's like, oh, na- now you need to go to like every convention and you need to start like cold calling companies and pitching things and having, you know, f- trying to have 40 meetings in a day where they're all having 40 meetings as well in a day. And they're so exhausted and you're so exhausted. And they're like, all right, what do you have for us now? And just you're just like getting your heart broken 40 times a day yeah. trying to get your next game to have somebody to pick it up. Um, I did that for about four or five years before I had built up enough traction that companies started coming to me and saying, okay, we know, you know, what kind of what you're able to do. Um, do you have any interest in Ghostbusters? And it's like, 
not only do I have an interest in Ghostbusters, I have I have a tattoo of of Gizmo from Gremlins dressed as a Ghostbuster. And they were like, all right, that's enough qualifications. We need you're hired. Can you make a Ghostbusters game? And, and so, you know, from from there, it sort of uh, snowballed a bit, at least until COVID, when uh, <laughs> the board game industry sort of collapsed in on itself. Uh, and that's that's when I sort of made the big pivot to full time writing. Well, it sounds to me like being a game designer is a lot like either being a filmmaker or, or a screenwriter where you're pitching stories to uh, different studios going, well, here's my, here's my script or here's my you know, film. And they'll either go yay or nay. Or we'll call you back at some point and let you know, and never do. <laughs> um, you know what? The third one is is the most common, yeah. uh, where they're like, "Yeah, sure, that sounds good. Give me your card. Give me a prototype that cost you fifty dollars to put together that I'm not going to send you back, and uh, <laughs> and when we'll maybe hear back, uh, get back to you in six months, uh, and, then, and then they ninety percent of the time never did. Uh, but yeah, the, it, it was. It's you know, it's a grind, just like in. In, in the enter- entertainment business, it's it's a grind. Well, yeah, I mean that's never annoying, right? Not hearing back, it's just like yeah, really? right. You guys don't have, you guys don't have the decency to tell me at least to know. I mean, just give me something. <laughs> now, the games you've designed run across different genres, from uh, Grindhouse uh, to Disney's uh, Sorcerers uh, Arena, Epic Alliances, uh, Munchkin yes. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Uh, you mentioned yeah. Ghostbusters. Do you like having that kind of variety when you're designing a game? I do. So I like working within licenses. It's when you're when you're creating your own game from scratch. It's it's an infinite you know sandbox. You're you're, you're in the Sahara Desert, and it's like okay, I can do anything I want. And sometimes you get that kind of a, a paralysis of like if I can do anything, I can't I can't think of anything. Um, I really like it when a company comes to me and they're like, okay. Are you familiar with this IP? You know, do you know this license? Do you like this license? Here's what we're looking for. And then I have like a, the Sahara becomes a, you know, a sandbox. And it's like, okay, well, I can work within a sandbox. If you're giving me these parameters to work within, um, you know, I can build you a game that has an MSRP of $40 and has like this level of components and is built to play for, you know, one hour for, for this age range. It's like, okay, well now we've limited this down. We've got this scope that seems clear. Um, and I'm kind of off to the races. And especially if it's a license that I love, you know, that's kind of like that child wish fulfillment happening. When I made the, the Munchkin Ninja Turtles game, I got to art direct Kevin uh, Wilson, who's the creator of the Ninja Turtles. And I was like, they were like, okay, so now come up with the art for Kevin to, to make. And I was like, I'm sorry, what? (laughs) <laughs> wait wait you're actually gonna have the creator of the ninja turtles and like i brought him this drawing i had done it like when i was like five years old that was still hanging on my mom's wall of like kang uh and i was like i drew this when i was five um i'm very excited to be a part of this wow. uh yeah so so there have been some moments within the board game industry where it's like oh Wow. All right. My inner child is like patting me on the back right now. (laughs) Very cool. I'm assuming, too, that there are certain guidelines that they give you based on whatever IP you're working with, whether it's Disney or Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, like what um, can't happen, I would say, just to just kind of put it that way. Uh, Yeah, they they would say this is what we want. This is what we don't want. Right. Absolutely, absolutely. I, I can kind of talk about this one because it 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 died uh, it died at the like the worst possible time. Um, I had this game that I was making. It was a it was a murder mystery game for like up to thirty people, wow. um, and it was all Batman villains. Wow. And yeah, and so it was all Batman villains. And the whole premise was like that the Joker had Batman's identity, and he was doing this auction. And halfway through the night, the Joker gets murdered, and every and the box goes missing, and everybody's got to figure out who killed the Joker. And I'd been pitching it to this big company, pitching it, pitching it, and they were like, "All right, we like it. We're going to push it to the next. We're going to push it to the next." And they went out and got uh, asked for Warner Brothers approval, and they said, "Yes, we love it, but we can't have guns." no guns. Huh. And it's like, okay, all right. They're like, we're moving away from guns in any way, any form. So like originally the Joker had been shot and it was like, okay, now he's been stabbed. 
the reason I can talk about this now is that the um, the final stage of that game when they were like, okay, we're we're just going to play through it one more time, and then and then we got the green light. That conversation happened March twelfth, twenty twenty. Oh, um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so ever since then, they were like, are you serious? You want to make a board game that um, has thirty people in a room together? That's never going to happen again. <laughs> I was like, okay, fair enough. Uh, but yeah, there there are sometimes some really weird and interesting little little things uh disney was was really big with that where that you know i i'm still under nda with disney sure. of what i can and can't talk about yeah. but there were a lot of weird little things where you'd create a card and it'd be a name or a quote from a movie and they'd say like well you can quote uh, a character's quote but it can't be a quote from a song yeah. because we don't we don't have the license ownership of the song because yeah. it, the song was written by someone else and so you get into like these layers yeah. of ownership and licensing that um, that can sometimes get a, a little frustrating but like most of the time you're like huh all right well I guess I guess that makes sense but it's something I had never considered yeah it's like that in television you can't if if, if you're doing like a talk show or if you're on a show or whatever game show and somebody starts singing a, a commercial song mm-hmm. you no, that's a no-no because the the yeah. composers will actually get paid for that. It's it's considered like being you know like if you were playing it on Spotify or something. Yeah, there's a lot right. of interesting licensing things that I've come across over the years. I was like, oh, I had no idea. Oh, okay, well, you can't do that either. I mean, considering that the Joker uses guns, uh, Harvey Dent uses guns in in the comics and the movie. It's it's very interesting that that they didn't want that. But I, that's too bad. That would have been a game I definitely would have wanted. I'm a big Batman fanatic, so. And they were like, "We yeah, we definitely want Deadshot in the game." And I'm like, "Okay, oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly." <laughs> like, I, I, and I forgot about him. Yeah, it's like, wait, the guy who's <laughs> that's all he does. How how am I supposed to do this exactly? <laughs> yeah, it was it, that was it was an odd one, but uh, but yeah, you know, I, at some point I I may just uh, you know I like because I have a newsletter um, and I give out some free short stories, but I also give out some free games when people sign up for my newsletter on my website. Um, and at some point, I may just drop that all in there and say, you know, if you want it, if you want to run it, here's all the stuff. Here's a big PDF. Um, and just have at it because I, I put I put like eight months into that game wow. and uh, I, I would love I'd love to have somebody else experience it at some point. That sounds awesome. I know a bunch of people that would get together for that. Um, that is just yeah. Oh wow, that's man. <sighs> These things happen. Um, it happens. <laughs> so um, when what was the what was the point in your career where you just sat back and said, okay, it's time to start writing. I want to write books. Um, I believe your first book was a short story book. Um, when did yeah, that so, take place? So yeah, I was so I was doing I was doing games and I had done this game called Grindhouse and the first version had come out and Grindhouse is basically like a choose your own adventure um, story game and so it's it's made up of and at this point we've got a second edition coming out in I think September and I've written something like two hundred and fifty interactive short stories for this game at this point. Um, and the whole thing is, is that your characters literally are losing their arms and legs as they go through the rooms. <laughs> and so like, you'll have a room and it'll be like, okay, everybody, um, you, we've got like, uh, um, these these like steaming hot like burger patties on on a grill and they're like everyone's got to flip the patties with your hands oh. so you're like burning off your hands to try to do it and like players have to volunteer to do it and you're like you've got these little uh, uh, arms and legs and you can flip over to injured sides and then you can remove them all together and then the art shows that they're missing limbs and literally that's your points like you want to end the game with as many limbs intact as possible <laughs> um, but I, I had done that and uh, so that was a lot of writing. It was a lot of short story stuff. And then I had gotten asked to, uh, to be a part of this short story uh, anthology called Diablo house. And it had a number of really big authors in it. Grady Hendrix had a story in there. Um, and you know, he's, I mean, he's huge right now. Um, and so I got to be a part of this anthology, which was really exciting. And that was again, right kind of right before 2019, 2020 ish, like right before the pandemic hit. Um, and a lot of people, when, when I say that the board game industry collapsed during the pandemic, people are oftentimes surprised. They're like, well, I thought people would be playing more board games. But the thing is, like, for most games, if you want to play a game with somebody, you got to invite somebody over. Yeah to play the game. Uh, and so like that didn't work. And then it was like, okay. And then all of these games are getting manufactured in China and then shipped over here. 
prices of manufacturing, prices of shipping quintupled. Um, and so like it priced out all of the small guys and really only the big players were left. Um, and so it was like, okay, I need to do something else. Um, and I had done some writing. Um, I, I had been writing D and D all my life. Um, and so I thought, you know, now it's time grindhouse had done well. I said, it's time to get really serious about this and, and start writing novels. And so, yeah, I started with the Island mother, which was, it's a folk horror novel that is, um, it's kind of, it's kind of a thriller folk horror where this woman is, she's kind of on the run from a, a meth dealing murderous ex-boyfriend and she finds a, a job at this like kind of paradise resort in, in uh, Hawaii. But then all of this spooky supernatural stuff starts happening all around her. Um, all these bad things are happening and, and it's kind of like, uh, it's like white Lotus meets midsummer, um, where, where it turns out that she's, she's embroiled herself in, in supernatural forces beyond her comprehension and realizes it far too late in the game. <laughs> uh, and so that was my first novel and that one came out, um, and it did pretty well. Uh, and then, and then I've got my new one slash tag that just came out. Um, that's, that's been I, I, I'm, I am shocked at, at the reception that, that Slash Tag has had so far. It's been, it's been a real wild ride in the last couple months with that one. Well, I don't want to overlook The Island Mother because that one, if I'm, if I'm right here, the publisher's weekly book life prize for best indie horror of 2022. Yes. So yeah. you're hitting a pretty good stride right now. Right out of the gate, that wins an award. That must have been pretty good validation for you for your first book. It was, you know, I, I had no idea if, you know, making the transition was going to gonna go smoothly or not. And, you know, everything, it's so community based, you know, any, anywhere that you're going, it, like I said, with, with board games, like it's all about networking. It's all about getting yourself to know the, the people in the community and getting them to either promote you or find, you know, a way to, to work with you. Um, and so I kind of felt like I was starting over when it came to writing. Um, and so being able to go in after the first book, which, you know, your first time doing any outing, you're like, okay, this is when I'm going to learn the ropes. This is when I'm going to make the, all of the mistakes and I'm going to, you know, figure out how everything is done properly. Um, and so, yeah, it was, it was pretty exciting to win an award like that and say, okay, so, you know, sales were okay. I was trying to figure out how to get, you know, marketing and get my, my name out there. But being able to say, like, content-wise, quality-wise, hey, this is this was the best, you know, indie indie horror of 2022, um, that, was, that was pretty cool. And so, you know, it, it got me jazzed to really put everything I could into, into the next one, into Slash Tag. Um, which, you know, now I've, I, I've, I feel like I'm still learning. I'm still making mistakes. I'm yeah, every, you know, that's the process you, you learn, you make mistakes and then you do it a little bit better the next time. Um, but, but slash tag has been, um, a much smoother experience. Well, I'm wondering too, because you're starting with a blank canvas when you're designing a game, you're starting with a blank canvas when you're writing a story. I'm wondering what the differences are when you're putting these together. I know it might be a general question, but when you're designing a game versus writing a book, what would the greatest challenge be between the two? Sure. Sure. So when you're, when you're designing a game, the biggest challenge is that you want to, you want the players to walk away having their own story of the experience and have that story be different every time. Uh, you want them to be able to say, can you believe what happened at the end of that last game? Can you believe this moment? You know, it's all about building towards these moments, but you don't have control over when those moments happen. All you can do is put all of the pieces there and hope that they fall into place in a certain way mm -hmm. that is going to be different every time. Um, when you're writing a book, you you have one story. You've got the one story that you're telling and you want to make sure that that one story is the best version of of that kind of player's experience is is sort of the way that I look at it. I don't I don't necessarily see myself as a writer. I see myself more as a storyteller that uses different mediums, I guess, to to find a way to communicate a story. Uh, and so that has sort of been the greatest challenge with writing the book. Uh, the books is, you know, if, if I'm if I'm, if I'm running a Dungeons and Dragons campaign, uh, my my players are nine times out of ten going to do 
something that's different than what I planned for. I can come up with 10 different ideas of what people will do and they will always go with the 11th. Um, always. And so when it's writing a book, I'm like, okay, I'm everyone. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I am all the players. Uh, and so it's, it's coming up with, you know, trying to come up with like, well, what's, what, what would this person do and trying to get into these characters heads um, and so for me, you know, I, lo- I know a lot of writers, they, they want to put the plot first. Um, I very much am a character first person. I like to do all my research ahead of time. I like to do all of my world building ahead of time, all of my character trees ahead of time, so that by the time the com- uh, that it comes to writing the plot, I've already got everything built. I've already have my sandbox mm-hmm. that is completely constructed so that I can kind of let my characters then run free and figure out what, what's, what is going to happen to them. Um, and so, you know, I have a loose plot outline for, for my story, but I really like to say I've got everything lined up. I've got everything ready to go. Now let's see where these characters go. Let's see what they do. Slash tag was number one on Amazon for new horror. Congratulations. You're two for two. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Yeah, it, was, it was number one in American horror. It was number one in classical horror. I'm not sure exactly what that means, but it got there. And then it got number one in horror, science fiction, and fantasy in television, which is, I think, which it still is now, which is because I think it's it's such a weirdly niche category uh-huh. uh, because Slash Tag takes place as a TV show. It's, it's um, the basic premise is that there is this reality competition series that is a horror-themed reality competition that these seven celebrities are all competing in and they have to try to... Um, exercise the ghost of a serial killer that's basically in a super haunted version of H.H. Holmes' murder mansion. Um, and so because it was set in Oz as a TV show, I was kind of a- able to, I guess, have a um, subcategory within within Amazon as television. And I was like, all right, I'll take it. Sure. Why not? <laughs> so um, for anyone that is interested in purchasing your books, um, tell them where they can go. Yeah, so it's on Amazon. Um, I have it as a paperback, uh, ebook. It's on Kindle Unlimited if you subscribe to that. Uh, it's also on Audible. So, and I've got a, a, an absolutely fantastic narrator. Her name's Lauren Ezzo. Uh, I was somehow able to capture her. She did the narration to this book called Dead Silence that came out last year by um, an author named S.A. Barnes. And, and if you liked, like, it's like Event Horizon meets The Shining. Ooh, crazy good book. Like it was my favorite book I read in 2022. And um, I was somehow able to to nab uh, Lauren as the narrator. And she does an absolutely incredible job. She takes the writing and elevates it to like a completely new level. Um, but um, yeah, so you can find it on Amazon. And then I, because I, I wanted this to be kind of an all kind of inclusive multimedia experience because it is supposed to be this TV show. It's supposed to be all kind of online. It's all very social media themed. I created a companion website that's in universe called slash tag insider.com. And on that website, you've got bios of all the characters. You've got maps of the hotel. Wow. Um, there's a five episode podcast that's in universe podcast that takes place throughout the book. And so like the first episode is spoiler free. It's like a, Hey, what do we think is going to happen on the show? And then you've got these other four episodes that take place and the, the book tells you when to listen to the podcast or that at least the optimal times to listen to the podcast episodes. But it, it kind of does a deep dive uh, into, into more if you wanted to get more. Um, Cause you know, again, I love to do the world building. I love to do all of this character stuff, but when you're writing a narrative, you want to make sure that the story is moving. Um, but sometimes people want to dig deeper. Sometimes people want to know about the world building. And so there's things that I'll reference in the book that it's just enough to get you through the story. But if you wanted to know more, you can listen to these podcasts and they give you that sort of extra layer of Im- immersion. I love that idea. I think that's so brilliant. I-, I really do. I wonder if that's maybe you're onto something that may be the future for a lot of this. I mean... It's so smart because you are a world builder and why waste all of that work if you can put it to good use? And I think, you know, you're using all parts of, you know, 
of the carcass, let's just say. I mean, you really yeah. are. You're not wasting any of it. <laughs> I, I, I even managed to loop Grindhouse back into it. So uh, Grindhouse, the game, is mentioned in-universe in the book of Slash Tag. And uh, we've got the second edition of Grindhouse coming out, again, I think September, October, around there. And I was able to work with the publisher. We have an expansion that is specifically focused around Slash Tag. And so it's it's called Welcome to the Propitious. The Propitious is the name of the hotel, the the haunted hotel that everyone's uh, locked in in Slash Tag. And so uh, <laughs> there's an, an entire expansion that goes straight into the book. And so again, it's it's building off of each other and kind of hoping that that I can merge these these two worlds of board games and uh, my novels and, and maybe create something greater than the sum of its parts. At least that's the goal. Well, I, it sounds to me like you're really hitting all the marks, and I'm really excited to delve into all of this. Now I just need the time to do it. <laughs> but <laughs> but I'll, I'll make the time. Hey, if anybody wants to follow you online on social media, are you on any of these sites? Yes, yes. I'm at John Cone Author. Uh, I'm on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Uh, you can sign up on my newsletter at johnconeauthor.com. Uh, I, or you can also sign up through my newsletter at the slash tag insider website. Uh, so you can find me in all of these places. Um, it's the same name, so it's easy to find um, J-O-N-C-O-H-N author. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm all over the place. Well, this is great. I, I Listen, I appreciate you having a, uh, taking the time to come on the program. Um, this was really fantastic. Uh, you have an open door here to come on in whenever you want to pitch uh, or uh, you want to uh, promote any of your next uh, products. Uh, I, I would love to have you back on the program again. Uh, John, oh, thank you. Yeah, listen, thanks so much for being here and uh, look forward to talking to you again. Good luck with the new book. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. And as I put this interview to rest, I want to thank John for joining me here on the program. Uh, it was really nice talking to him. And um, I really can't wait to uh, read his books because, uh, well, especially with Slash Tag, all the uh, different media that, can, <laughs> that you can uh, weave in between, between podcasts and games and everything else, that's going to be awesome. So check it out. I would love to know your thoughts if you've uh, read the book. Um, and if you happen to be somebody out there that at some point gets this Batman game that he was talking about with me earlier, uh, please let me know. <laughs> Let me know how it was, because I really wish that game was available. Uh, I'm a big board game fanatic. That with Batman, and I'm in. Now, as I begin to close down the graveyard, I wanted to thank all of you who have uh, subscribed to the Graveyard Show podcast on YouTube. Uh, many more of you have been finding the channel and have been subscribing and commenting on my videos. I want to send out a special thank you to uh, Zodi77. And uh, Joe Hall. Joe left some really nice comments on one of my videos. And uh, Zodi as well. Uh, that would be the uh, Catacombs of Horror uh, Count Yorga videos. And Joe's was on the uh, Caretaker Reveals Count Yorga. Um, it's really nice to engage with, uh, with viewers and listeners uh, of the show. And uh, it just makes me happy to know that you guys are engaging out there. And, uh, you know, if you appreciate it and you let me know, I will get right back to you. And uh, it does mean a lot to me. Um, you know, I do put not a ton of time into these things, but, uh, well, with Catacombs of Horror, there's a lot of work. Uh, Caretaker reveals not so much, but it just means a lot to uh, get a little love out there. Um, sometimes it's a little quiet. You don't know what to think. Um, so to get a little bit of love... Uh, goes a long, long way. So thank you, uh, Zodi77 and Joe Hall out there in uh, YouTube land. I really do appreciate it. Uh, among many of of you, and um, I, I do reply, and uh, if you don't believe me, just go check it out. Now, Zodi was asking about the movie Deathmaster. Um, since I've done Catacombs of Horror on Count Yorga and the return of Count Yorga, uh, Zodi77 was wondering if I was going to do one on Deathmaster which was the third vampire movie that Robert Quarry did that has no relation to Count Yorga, but we kind of put it in the Yorga unofficial trilogy, let's just say. Um, and yes, I will be, just not yet. I have Blackula 
uh, coming up on Catacombs of Horror. And then I think I'm going to veer away from the vampire movies for a little while because that would make out of my five Catacombs of Horror, three of them on vampire movies. So I kind of want to change it up. I have some other ideas for other movies as well. And then I have a major one that I'm working on, which is probably going to take me about a year to put together at least. Um, that uh, I think is going to be really worth it when it's all said and done. But I need some time to really put this one together. So anyway, so uh, there you have it. So if you want to get in touch with me, the caretaker, you can do so uh, quicker on YouTube uh, than you would if you email me. But um, I do reply, and uh, I do like replies, and I will pin stuff, especially if you correct me, (laughs) like someone did on the Catacombs for Count Yorga Vampire. Uh, and a reminder, if you are a podcast subscriber, um, you should consider subscribing to the Graveyard Show podcast on YouTube because I'm uh, devoting a lot more time doing videos uh, for YouTube than I am the podcasts. Uh, so, for example, in the last um, month and a half, I've uploaded quite a bit of programming to uh, YouTube. For me, this quite a bit. You're talking about the Caretaker Reveals episode on the Amusement Park Blu-ray review, spoiler-free. Uh, the Count, the Caretaker Reveals Count Yorka Collection Blu-ray review, that's spoiler-free. Um, and then uh, there are uh, the GYS Classics. And then I just started uploading movie trailers as well. So as I get movie trailers for upcoming releases, I am now putting them on the graveyard shows youtube channel as well you can currently see trailers for the movies mad heidi the flood um and then the in search of darkness uh commercial for the coffee table book as well as the in search of darkness part three flash sale which is over but you can still see the commercial for in search of darkness part three or the trailer um is on there as well so a lot more of that going up than podcasts Um, And there's just a ton more stuff on there you can find as well. Old uh, Graveyard Show podcasts, uh, BC's Video Vault, where he did uh, movie reviews uh, for my old Graveyard Show podcast from 9 and 10. Old horror promos from the Horror Podcasting Network, old promos for this show, a bunch of stuff. So you can check that out. Uh, The handle is at Graveyard Show Podcast. At Graveyard Show Podcast is where you can find me on YouTube. Look forward to seeing you inside the graveyard on youtube that's going to do it for me my friends i look forward to seeing you again very soon and as you exit the graveyard i would like to remind you to please lock the gate behind you we wouldn't want anyone to get out until next time